This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great today, Tim. Thanks so much for asking. I'm very excited to present this really thought-provoking conversation to our listeners. I hope everyone out there is doing great. But, Tim, how are you, sir? What, is Frank Polari around here? Sir? Uh, no, I'm doing great. This conversation that we had with authors LaDonna Humphrey and Alicia Lockhart is not true crime light, Lance. This is... Uh, the opposite. This is this is true crime uh, about as dark and fringy as you can get in talking about the death fetish community. This conversation itself does sort of teeter on that, but it's not as dark as the actual act of death fetish and not just like that as like a innocent kink. The people that are involved in the community really take it to an extreme level. As you listen to this conversation, you'll start to understand that this is sort of connected to the murder of Melissa Witt. And then it's even further connected to the murder of Melissa Trotter. And then Alicia's story is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it really is. And it is documented in their book called Strangled. And you can get a copy online. There's a link in the show notes. These two, LaDonna and Alicia, have started their own podcast. It's called Deep Dark Secrets Podcast. But Lance, they met because LaDonna has been investigating Melissa Witt's unsolved murder. And Alicia had, well, I guess a, a part of the puzzle. So when they met up, they started looking into this together and it's led to a book and now their podcast, Deep Dark Secrets. And you can check that out at deepdarksecretspodcast.com and they want to make sure you go to the advocacy link where you can scroll down a little bit. It gives you a bunch of options on how to contribute to fight this. And also there's a uh, change.org signature link there as well that we encourage you to sign. Okay, Tim, I got the question of the week for you. Oh, please. What is it? Where would I go if I wanted to listen to this episode and all of our other episodes without the ads? Oh, great question. Well, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm if you're a non-Apple user. And if you're an Apple user, you can subscribe right there in the Apple Podcasts app. It is Crawlspace Premium, and it's only $4.99 a month. You get early releases, every single episode ad-free, and you get our weekly bonus show. Can't beat it with a stick. Nor would I want to. I know I said that that was the question of the week, but I got another one. Where would one follow us if they wanted to on social media? Oh, that's an even better question, Lance. Well, listeners can follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. All right, and we're going to break for one of those aforementioned ads, and we'll be right back with LaDonna and Alicia. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. 
LaDonna Humphrey and Alicia Lockhart. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having us. Well, it's a delight to uh, round out our week. We're doing this on a Friday afternoon, so we always like to schedule the conversations that we know are going to be stimulating as possible. And you two are going to bring this topic to the to the conversation table. And I don't know, Tim and I were, were talking about it earlier on today, and we were saying, like, we're so looking forward to discussing this, but we're so kind of dreading it as well. So thank you. Yeah, it's a heavy food for thought. It is. Yeah, it's a topic that isn't uh, talked about in true crime. It's kind of, I guess, pushed down. I think some people are aware of this kind of thing. It wasn't until I heard of your book, Strangled, um, that I started learning about it. I appreciate you both writing the book about uh, your experiences. This book is based on your experiences in this community, right? Yep, it's all true, which is... I mean, it's sometimes hard to wrap your brain around that. I've gotten a lot of feedback over the last couple of months, you know, just from friends, family that are reading this book. Something that I've heard from multiple people is like, I have to stop myself while I'm reading and remember that this is happening to my friend. You know, like it's hard to believe that it's happening to anybody. But, you know, have people give that feedback. It is it's a wild story. And it's been a really, really crazy experience for both of us. Yeah, I think for some people, they would rather believe that it's fiction. We have a lot of people ask us, is this true? Because it seems so unbelievable. And people that don't know about that particular topic when it comes to death fetish, they they just can't even imagine that anybody would be into that sort of a thing. So yeah, it's been it's been interesting to see people's feedback. They're either, you know, really enthralled by it or they're pretty horrified or both. Pretty early on in the book, you start to identify why this could be obviously horrifying. But before we get into the minutia of this, I think one of the first questions I had when I started was, why did these two decide to embark on this when there are so many other true crime avenues to go down? Who else is going to do it? That's right. Yeah. I think I said that one day. Who else is going to do it? But seriously, for me, I've been involved with the Melissa Witt case for eight years. And I'm incredibly passionate about that case. And I want to see some some justice and some closure in that case. This was just part of that case, unfortunately. This was a real tip that came in. That's how I met Alicia. And I'll kick it over to her and let her talk about that for a little bit. It completely pertains to the Melissa Witt case. But then when you see it and you, you see this evil head on and you know that it's impacting people and that there are real murders that are happening because of this community, I couldn't walk away from that. We decided to tackle it head on. But I will kick it over to Alicia so she can talk a little bit about how it impacted her life. Yeah, I would definitely say that this wasn't a mission that I intentionally set out to be a part of. I do feel like this mission chose me, at least, and I feel... Like there's something bigger going on here rather than just two women who, you know, decided to set out and do some good in the true crime community. It doesn't really, to me, feel like a choice after the experiences we've had and what we've seen. I just can't imagine turning away from that and not trying to do something about it. You know, there's horrific stuff going on there and there are women who are dying because there are people in these internet communities that are being conditioned to think that it's normal to fantasize about murdering women and having sex with their dead bodies. And I just can't 
know that and like sleep at night without trying to do something about it. So I very much feel like the mission chose me because I just don't have the ability to turn away from it. It's not a choice for me. Do you wish that both of you, do you wish that you could turn it off? Or is that just sort of something that you say because you want to wish that you could turn it off when you know deep down you really couldn't? Because you both said terms to the effect of you looked at it and you couldn't walk away from it or I couldn't turn away from it. I feel like even if you wanted to, you couldn't, right? And also, where does that come from? That's a tough question. That's hard. I'm like, I'm pointing to Alicia. I'm going to make her answer it. No, I don't want to walk away from that. There's too many women that are dying because of this. Jane Longhurst, Sharon Lapotka, Hope Barden. It goes on and on and on. And so you see that as a woman and having daughters, you know, I I have to take a stand against it. Somebody has to do it. Also, we're in it at this point to win it. They know who we are. They know our faces. And so the best way to deal with that horror is to face some head on and try to take them down. So I don't even think that I would walk away from it if I could, because there's just so much there and so much change that needs to happen. And it just makes sense that the universe put us together to do this. That's really kind of how we see it. And when I had said that, you know, there are times that I wish that I could, what I mean by that is that we have been harassed, threatened. There's a lot of negative things happening to us as a result of taking a stand against this community. And there's definitely days where I'll wake up and I'm just like, why am I doing this? You know, like, am I bringing this on to myself? Is there, you know, any way to avoid this? But it's like a 24 hour period. I'll just wake up and I'm like, I can't, I can't even look in there today. I don't want to know who's saying what in the death fetish forums or, you know, I'll get an email or a text message that I'm just not feeling like dealing with. But there's really no more than like 24 hours that goes by. The next day I'll wake up and be like, all right, I'm ready to fight you guys because this is my mission. And I I think I would just add real quick, if I'm the one that's down, she's up and she's giving me the pep talk or vice versa because we definitely have those those good and bad days you really shouldn't feel bad about taking a break especially with this topic specifically this is the heaviest corner of true crime that i've come across personally i would love to know how it got to this point uh alicia i know you had a physical run-in with a producer yeah i'll just give kind of a i've been working on how to give a shortened rundown of that experience but In 2009, I was looking for employment. I wound up responding to an ad that was like for like a secretary, personal assistant sort of work. And it wound up being for this guy that was a pornography producer. It is my belief that the employment ad that I responded to was fake. I don't think that he actually needed any sort of secretary. I think this was an advertisement that he would use to get sort of like fresh women in for interviews so that he could sort of groom them into modeling for fetish videos and that's what he did with me I was really young and naive he did you know pay me for a few shifts to come in and basically play office with him while he (laughs) tried to talk me into modeling at the time I thought that he was a clown 
pornographer. <laughs> like I thought that was his niche because that's what that's what I saw him filming in my interview. So when he approached me to model for a death fetish film, uh, like a morgue fetish film, I was told that this was like a very unusual request for a private client and that this video would not go anywhere on the internet it would just be like a dvd for one person and i felt comfortable modeling in that circumstance it turned out to not be a great idea for me i do believe that i was drugged the day of the shoot i don't really remember leaving the shoot i don't remember a lot of the video because i have spoiler alert have found the video and watched it at this point and that video that i uh, modeled for involved me pretending to be a dead strangulation victim in a morgue. The producer made it very clear that it was important that I wear a Mickey Mouse watch in all of this footage. At the time, I didn't know anything about Melissa Witt uh, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I didn't know that Melissa Witt was abducted and strangled and murdered or that she had owned a Mickey Mouse watch and that her, you know, it's kind of believed that her killer may have kept that watch as a trophy because it's missing. But when I recounted this experience that I had had with a family member, it was my sister, you know, her listening to the story, she was just like, she's a true crime fan. And she was just like, this sounds like a serial killer sort of situation, like a trophy. And, you know, have you ever looked into this? And so she just did a quick Google search. I think she put in like Mickey Mouse watch plus murder. And that led her to Miss LaDonna Humphrey and all of the all of the work that there is online about, you know, LaDonna advocating for Melissa Witt, trying to bring awareness to her case. I mean, we found podcast interviews. I think there's even one that you two had done with her. You know, we just found a lot of information about the Melissa Witt case and about LaDonna as a result of just searching Mickey Mouse Watch plus murder. You had said at the beginning that you wanted to work on a shortened rundown of your story. And I'm wondering if that is for the person listening or if that is for you, that you are trying to be considerate to the person listening or you just don't want to keep telling it over and over. I think it's more like being considerate to the time constraints of shows. I don't want to take an hour telling people about this experience that I had. And I assume that if they're interested in learning more details that they can read the book, you know, check out one of our other episodes on our podcast where we do go into greater detail. But it's been sort of of like therapeutic in a weird way for me to take something that's like a really shameful dark secret of my own and to be able to just own that story as my own story and I really don't I don't mind telling it but I do know that you know certain situations don't provide me the amount of time that would be necessary to go into each detail and that it is an uncomfortable story to hear for some people for sure just for the time constraints like just logistically maybe that's the consideration you should have but anyone who hasn't read the books anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast really should to to get the full account because all of that information has to be out there And I'm so glad to hear that you take it as like a therapy, that it's therapeutic for you to keep saying and to hear people react to it, give their advice or however that, you know, conversation plays out after you tell the story. I think that's really important because, again... Tim said, like, this is one of the darkest corners of true crime. It's one of the heaviest corners of true crime. You you two know it. I think it just needs to get that light shown on it. 
she's incredibly brave to be able to come forward with this story like she has. Just from the aspect of how it impacted her personal life, you know, how it impacts us now going forward. Because we're not like a death fetisher and hiding behind a screen name. You know, we're saying, hey, I'm LaDonna Humphrey and this is Alicia Lockhart. And we're here to take you head on. So all of it is brave. And um, I'm proud to work with her. I'm proud to work with you too. Oh, thank you. Good little heart. Um, but I've wondered that question too. And we've never really talked about it. You know, is it hard for her to talk about it? Because she just seems so brave. Well, good. I'm glad that there is some uh, therapeutic purpose for your story and uh, fighting back in the way that you two have chosen to fight back. Okay, so tell me what happened when you finally connected and you mentioned your experience to LaDonna. Well, it started out with me, you know, kind of internet stalking LaDonna for like a whole day. I was like, what is this case? Who is this lady? What's going on here? So I was looking at the who killed missy wit page and that was pretty creepy for me because there was like a police sketch there that really looks like my former employer the man that was filming me at that point i knew that there was no way that i couldn't reach out and say something so i did end up submitting a tip through the there's like a contact form for tips on her website yeah so then i get this tip that comes in and it's nothing like we'd ever received before ever i was shocked like it just plagued me the entire day i didn't even know what death fetish was and so you know i have a completely different life outside of true crime in the wit case and so i'm spending my day in that life (laughs) you know my full-time job thinking to myself, oh my God, what is death fetish? So by the time I was able to meet with authorities about this, you know, I sent that over to them immediately and we did have a meeting. It was decided that I would get to know Alicia and understand her motives for turning in the tip and whatever I could do to find some information out about her employer and potentially the film. And so through that process, I really got to know Alicia and understood her motives were very pure in coming forward. How scared she really was that she could be connected. As we hit it off as friends, it became very clear that she had a drive and a passion to get to the truth, just like I did. And so it really just kind of worked out that, you know, we're geared the same way. And so we really with permission of law enforcement and their assistance, we really dove in and did some undercover work to see what we could find out in the death fetish community. And it's really just kind of exploded from there. It's not been something that we could walk away from because like almost every single day we find out something else. What can we do to make the biggest impact? But that's really what got me involved. And then, you know, investigators here who have, you know, continued to look at that angle in Melissa's case. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Tim and I are approaching this because we're familiar with the books and we've spoken with you and and we know Melissa's case, not as well as you, but you've told us the details of it. But for those who don't know, you mentioned the Mickey Mouse watch. We're talking death fetish community. Can you just take us back a little bit and tell us what is so important about this Mickey Mouse watch and why it became this instrument in the connection between the two of you? And where did that request come from, from your employer? So I'm sorry, I think I just threw out about half a dozen questions all at once, but it's all sort of around the same thing. You're good. So in terms of Melissa, Melissa's 19-year-old girl that was abducted from a bowling alley parking lot in Fort Smith in December of 1994. When her body was recovered, 
you know, roughly six weeks later, she was completely nude. Everything was gone, including her Mickey Mouse watch, which was something that she wore all the time. And it was really believed and is still believed by investigators that whoever murdered Melissa kept that Mickey Mouse watch. You know, Melissa strangled to death. You know, the only bone broken on her body was the hyoid bone from the strangulation, nothing else. So she wasn't beaten. All of those things, you just start saying, hmm, you know, what happened here? In terms of this video and the parallels to the Witt case, you've got this girl who is strangled and he focuses in on this Mickey Mouse watch. And I'm going to let Alicia talk a little bit about that in the film. You know, from my perspective, that watch was not necessary in that film in this morgue film, but, and yet the Mickey Mouse watch is the star of the show. So uh, taking you uh, back to the film and how that watch was presented and what, you know, what importance it had there. When I was approached to do this film, I was told that it would be just like a play dead in the morgue film. Nothing was mentioned to me about a watch initially, but after I arrived at the the setting to shoot, which by the way was this guy's house in a basement, and he had other areas that he would shoot into, like the interview that I had with this man was in this big warehouse. There was like a whole production crew, a film crew, multiple people working together on a clown pornography. This morgue video that he wanted to shoot of me wound up just being me and him alone in his basement, like the basement of a house that he lived in. And I was quite surprised that there was no camera crew when I got there. He was like, I'm going to do this with a tripod. And as we were preparing to shoot, he pulled out this like old Ziploc bag with a Mickey Mouse watch in it. And he was like, oh, I almost forgot. I'm going to need you to put this on before we start filming. And when he gave me this watch, I was creeped out. I was like, is this a little kid's watch? Like, whose watch is this? And he seemed irritated with me for asking that. He was like, the client sent this to me. I don't ask people about that. Like, I don't know whose watch it was. I just film the films however they request me to make them. And he went on to say this watch is the most important detail about this film. And he said, if you are not willing to film with this watch on the whole time, I will find a different model and I will pay somebody else the $500. It was like a standstill. I basically had to put it on or, you know, leave and walk away from what I had deemed to be just super easy money at the time. And so I put it on and, you know, so there was some discomfort there for a moment about this, but it was definitely an adult's watch, you know, like it had a a brown leather band and I mean I definitely thought about it like what (laughs) what's the purpose of this this is very weird but it is a very unique detail in this video and like LaDonna said the way that the video is filmed there's these like slow pans of my arm going down to the watch and then it like zooms in and it zooms out and it's like (laughs) Like LaDonna said, the watch is a star of this video as much as I am or he is. Investigators automatically start to wonder, does he know about the Witt case? 
is it the the client that asked for the video? Then when you see the video and you realize that some of the poses that he has Alicia in in this video are very pertinent to the Wit case. They are. Then you start to say, we might have something here. We need to find this producer and we need to find the client. That and then you start looking at his other films and you see bits and pieces of other cases in other films that jump out at you. And then you think, oh my God, you know, that's just a great big assumption. But so we had to dig deeper and I don't know how much of a spoiler you want me to give, but I mean, there was enough there you know, he had ties to Arkansas. And so then you're like, we've got to run this guy completely down. He's into death fetish. He makes strangulation videos. And what about this damn Mickey Mouse watch? It was full speed ahead for us. Because like I said, we hadn't had a lead like that ever come in in the Wick case. Okay, so you call him Carl Coleman in the book. Obviously, that's a fake name. Have you been able to identify who this person really is? Yes, we know his real identity, where he is what he's doing. He's monitored. We've got federal authorities and state authorities that are notified and involved. So yeah, we know who he is. He knows who we are too, though, you know, and that that's a little disturbing. And of course, you know, he, he denies everything, any connection. It's just all one big weird coincidence. And until you can prove something, you have something solid, but there sure is a lot of coincidences when it comes to that movie, that person, his history, and just the death fetish industry, you know, as a whole. But in the course of all this, when we start doing some investigating into the into the community because of Carl Coleman and because of this video, you know, I started getting very strange emails from other people within the community because they had you know, snagged my IP address. And, you know, it was the Vermilion Strangler. It was Jessica X. It was Snuff Princess. It's all these people contacting me, hinting that they had some information about the Wit case and the ties to the death fetish community. So it got really scary and really escalated really quick. So was there a client or was it all this guy making that video and others? That's a fantastic question. And every time that this individual has been interviewed about that, different answer. You know, legally, he should have to maintain some records. But this film was made in the early 2000s. And it just so happens that he lives in a state that has a little bit more loosey-goosey laws in terms of anything that's going to be death fetish related. It's making it a little bit more difficult for us to even be able to get a client list. But he doesn't tell the truth. And like Alicia mentioned, every time he's been interrogated, it's something, it's a different answer. Oh, they're in the Netherlands. No, I'm sorry. You know, they're, I can't even remember some of the countries he said. Germany. You know, it just, it changes. It just, there's these variations. And that makes you wonder why he can't tell the same story twice. He also says that the client is deceased now. If there is a client, I I just don't know. Is there a court order that can be issued to, I guess, obtain his client list or because there was no like actual crime committed, he isn't required to provide the client list? Well, he's sold his business, including all of his paperwork. So I'm not sure how easy it would be to obtain that. I don't think it would be very easy, but we're just not to that point yet. I don't foresee that there will be a court order issued anytime soon. I think I think it could happen. Do the records exist is a different question. I mean, this guy is in the state of Oregon. Things are different in Oregon than they are 
in the other states as compared to death fetish laws and just how law enforcement handles things. A lot of what's happening there, because we're in Arkansas with the Witt case, it makes it a little bit more difficult, but there's just not enough there for federal authorities to go in and kick down his door and say, hey, we're taking all your stuff. Does he have a uh, criminal record? No criminal record. Really? Oh, that's surprising. Was he suspected in other murders or missing uh, persons cases? There's a couple of other cases that we've that we've identified that we've looked at his movies with and that our team has looked at. I couldn't tell you for certain that these other investigative agencies are taking that and looking into him. You know, we've turned the information over. One of the cases is actually a solved case. And we think that he could have been involved in it. Some of his movies are very similar to that particular case. It's a lot like Melissa Witts. And then on top of that, he's from that area. There, There's a lot there. But being able to get everybody on the same page and put together some sort of task force for this one particular guy, it's been frustrating for us because a lot of this has you know, fallen to us and to investigators here in Arkansas. Real quick, do you have any idea how he would solicit or how people would contact him if they had requests for these videos? According to him, which is, I'll let you decide if, you know, that's the most accurate information, but he says that he's out of the business and that he has sold his business. But back in the day uh, when he was fully operational, when I filmed with him, he said that he had a very discreet website where people could email and ask for requests or have some sort of contact form like that. I have been able to find older websites of his um, just going through like the Wayback Machine. So I can kind of see what that looked like back then. He also has owned his own death fetish forums. I mean, there's multiple death fetish forums and communities online that have these hosting sites attached to them. Some of them are gated and they're like cryptocurrency places and others are not. I'll just throw out one that is on the surface web that you don't need cryptocurrency to go to. So there's a website called Dead Sexy Clips. You can go there and you can see catalogs of these videos and These producers have these, uh, it's like a shop on there. So you can contact them through there, through their little like clip site. And you can request uh, what's called a custom. So I would assume that a lot of his clients came from places like that. Like either in the death fetish forums, they would email him or they would go to his direct website or they could have been ordering on these uh, hosting sites. The fetishers, that's what we call them, they... They run in the same circles. And so, you know, when we're in the forums undercover, we see a lot of requests for, you know, I'd like to see this kind of film. Or, you know, this is what my fantasy is type of thing. And so I think a lot of that probably happened through email, too. And they run in the same circles. It's like its own little, it's, it is its own little community. So, yeah, a variety of ways. He, he was very big into death fetish, you know, many years ago. Whether he's still that involved now, I mean, again, that's that'll be for maybe the reader to decide after they read Strangled. We can't say for sure. 
I can tell you what, what I think. I think that, yeah, he probably is involved. But being able to prove that when he's behind a screen name that maybe we've not identified yet makes it a little bit more difficult. Tell me about the legalities of this kind of thing, making a video like that, being in the community and writing some things like that. It depends on what state you're in. So there's different laws in different states. And then there are also federal obscenity laws. You know, different states interpret things differently. Some states aren't going to do much of anything. There's no teeth in any of their laws or they just don't address it the same way. Oregon is one of them. If you're going to be a death fetish producer, Oregon's a great place for you to live. So unlike the South, where the laws are a little bit more stringent. So and, and I'll let Alicia touch on that a little bit, too. But it's the federal obscenity laws that we really want to focus on, because that is where they're crossing the line. That does make these kind of works illegal. You just need teeth in those federal obscenity laws. Yeah. And like LaDonna said, if you, you know, you go into a death fetish forum or you go into a hosting site and you click on any video, you're not going to know where the producer lives just from looking at that video. So every single video, you have to trace back who the business owner is to figure out exactly how illegal this video is that you're watching. We've been doing that. It's painstaking. Sometimes it takes a while to connect the producer with the business license that they're actually listed under and figure out where they're located. These guys talk a lot. They love to talk about themselves. So I do a lot of research. I get to know, you know, what producer screen names are and I find their little chit chats with their death fetish buddies and figure out because they'll say, oh, I was, you know, living in Florida this year. Or I went here and it's been it's been tricky at some points and then easier than you would think at others to find out each one of them. But we're going through that process to figure out who is doing things that are illegal in their states. And then, as LaDonna said, there are federal obscenity laws about pornography. Those laws are very, very up for interpretation. So there's this thing called the Miller test to determine if something is obscene or not federally. Basically, it has to be something that the general population of the area that it was filmed in would say has no artistic value, would say is offensive. That's going to depend on where this is going to trial. You know, if we find somebody and we turn them in against that federal law, they would have to basically have like a jury or a trial that watches this film and have them decide, does our community think that this has any artistic value? Some examples of obscenity cases that are very interesting for us to research, because we do get to see like what usually gets thrown out and what usually gets charged. I'm sure you can, you can tell that that's you know, changing as times forge on things that would have been obscene in the 70s, you know, like videos that have urine or feces, those aren't getting the same obscenity charges that they would have 30 years ago. There are examples of things that usually will have charges stick, and those are going to be videos that um, have some sort of sexual activity with livestock, obviously videos that have some sort of sexual activity with children, videos that have some sort of sexual activity depicted or real with human corpses. So we feel 
like we have a pretty good understanding of this federal law and that a lot of these videos are good for it, you know, are good for charges. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. I'm just curious, though, and I'm not making this argument, but I'm sure you've heard it. What is the argument against this just being freedom of speech? I would say their highest argument is that this is artistic to me. This is freedom of speech. We, you know, we have the right to make these films. We have the right to J off to these films because of freedom of speech. And that really is their argument that these should remain for that reason. But I think I would counter that with, if you look at research for mainstream pornography, okay? And I'm not taking up the cross for trying to go against mainstream porn, but I'm just talking about actual research that we've looked at. And you see that actual mainstream porn, it alters your brain. And the people that are involved in that over a long period of time are more aggressive and prone to sexual violence towards women. And that's mainstream porn. So then you compare that and you think about death fetish pornography, how much worse that would be for your brain. And you, then you look at the people that actually go out and act and commit these crimes. Yeah, there is a big argument because then there are also people who say, well, it's thought police. This is just fantasy. You can't be the thought police. But our concern really is based in those crimes that are really happening because of this community. And the movies are terrible, but it's those forums that are the same because it's the discussions that are happening in those forums. And those are what I think people should also be really frightened about because these are real men asking to meet up with women and they've even made appointments with Alicia who's worked undercover to murder her. To say, hey, well, I'm going to meet you at this time at a freaking Barnes and Noble. Then I'm going to go back to my house and I'm going to torture and decapitate you. That is not freedom of speech. And that goes way beyond thought police. They're acting. They're setting a time and a place. I can't think of another example that would be at all similar to this as you were talking and saying freedom of speech, my artistic expression. And not everybody has to like it, but, you know, people have these fantasies. So all I'm doing is trying to provide to them a release for their fantasies. I was trying to think about another thing that is like that, that you can use as a comparison, but I can't. Maybe watching, you know, the cliche if you watch too or play too many video games with guns and you're more likely to blah, 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 you know, and you can have those whole interpretive thing about it that's really just a bad example but it's about as close as i can come is there another example that you you two can think of yeah i mean i, I would say that the fetishers give the example of horror movies they think well that's fantasy and people consume those and there's a plot to that and it's all it's not all focused on the rape torture and murder of a young woman and it's not created for the sexual gratification of somebody that cannot enjoy sex without thinking about murder the fetishers will say this is normal this is a fetish you know a normal fetish it's like you know somebody has a foot fetish no i'm afraid it's just not the same using that foot fetish example it would cross the line if i had a foot fetish and it led me to chopping off my neighbor's feet <laughs> 
I mean, there's there's a, such a thing as like you've taken every single fetish way too far. Right. I think the other thing I would say, and I'm getting, you know, really frustrated with the fetishers thinking about them, is that so along with the fantasy aspect of it, you know, they want to make sure that we're always saying it's fantasy, okay? Because it's this fantasy world that they have online. But they're also, I would say 90% of these people are also involved in these shock and gore websites. And that's real stuff, okay? So they're over here looking at femme fatalities, talking about who they want to strangle and murder. Well, I feel like documenting reality is a good example. And they're looking at real car accidents and murders and child victims and and so they're meshing the two things together. You know, necrophilia, which is a big part of a lot of this, is is actually considered a mental illness. And so there's there's that aspect to consider too. I mean, there's just a lot to it. Tell us about Melissa Trotter's case because her case comes up in the book. Was she also wearing a Mickey Mouse watch? She was, yes. She had a Mickey Mouse watch. Pretty crazy. And there's a lot of, and I'll let Alicia talk about that a little bit too, because she's the one that discovered the similarities in some of his movies. And this is going to blow your mind, but my video isn't the only video with a model wearing a Mickey Mouse watch. There's two. Is it the same watch? It is the same watch, I would say. You know, it's a video that has a bunch of Easter eggs in it that to me are about Trotter. You know, there's a Christmas tree in the background, which is the same time of year that actually both Melissa's disappeared in December. I know it was four years apart. I believe that it was four years after Wit. Melissa Trotter was murdered in Conroe, Texas, and the murders are pretty similar in terms of they were both named Melissa, they were both 19, happened the same week of December, just four years apart. Melissa Trotter was, it appears, abducted out of a parking lot and then some weeks later her body was found um, in a national forest park. So there's a lot of similarities with Melissa Trotter's murder and Melissa Witt's murder. And Melissa Trotter was a strangulation victim as well. I was really shocked reading about Melissa Trotter's murder in the book and especially about the Mickey Mouse watch connection, but also the the affidavit that you guys got about her being stalked before she was murdered was uh, really frightening. She had actually been pursuing a modeling career (laughs) and she was being stalked and harassed. Uh, There was a very nasty man that was calling her on the phone and telling her that he was gonna um you know strangle her or choke her and watch her die and that's just it's insane to realize that that potential connection exists there too in a state that my former employer grew up in i know Melissa Trotter's case had a, a man, Larry Swearing, Swearingen, I, I believe, uh, actually executed for her murder. Any chance that the guy known as Carl Coleman also had some connection to Melissa Trotter's murder? Before I came along, I know that LaDonna had, you know, a very strong interest in Larry Swearingen for Melissa Witt's murder, as well as believing that he he had been the one that killed Trotter. But there's a lot of people out there, including the Innocence Project, who believe that Swearingen did not kill Trotter, even though he was convicted and executed for that. Looking at the other side of that and thinking, well, is it possible that Swearingen 
was innocent, if he was innocent, then who killed Trotter? And is it the same person that killed Wit? You start putting all those pieces together while also learning that Trotter was actively seeking modeling work of some sort, being harassed by somebody who wanted to choke her to death. You find out that she also had a strange man who was coming and picking her up from work. Some of her co-workers were eyewitnesses and were able to identify what this person looked like, this mystery man that had been picking her up. They kind of assumed that it was also the person that was calling her. Because she was hesitant to talk to this guy, to get into his car, she knew there was going to be conflict with this person and had expressed being kind of scared about him showing up there. So it seems to me like the guy who was calling her was that guy that was coming to pick her up. And we know what that guy looks like. And that's been a detail of Trotter's case. And we were able to connect with somebody who had done a lot of research on that, a juror. And he provided the name of that person, images of the person that they thought had been coming to pick her up. They found this man and talked to him. Turned out it wasn't him. He wasn't the one picking her up. He just looked like whoever it was. And this person looks exactly like my former employer. It's like they could be twins. I have photos of them side by side that I obviously can't release and it's scary it's disturbing the person stalking melissa trotter wasn't larry swearingen as, as well right her right? co-workers knew who larry swearingen was and said that it was not him on the phone and it was not him in the parking lot with the truck picking trying to pick her up you know the interesting thing in that case is that swearingen had only met trotter just a couple of days before her death he met her by chance in a parking lot at a gas station type that she was picking up a pizza sort of like here in Arkansas they have Casey's and you can buy a pizza there it was it was a situation like that so he hadn't known Trotter very long is the Mickey Mouse watch like a thing in the fetish community the death fetish community no just in this particular these particular circumstances yeah there's two two films that I've seen with the watch in them and they were both filmed by my former employer and both Melissa's Trotter and Wit were wearing one Yes. What does that tell you? I mean, there's always been the belief that those two cases could be related. They're both 19. They're both Melissa. They're both abducted in December, almost four years apart to the very day. They're both found an hour away in a national forest. They're both strangled. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to take pause at those cases. And then you add in the Mickey Mouse watch and it's just, it was, it's almost mind blowing to think that they're not related. And then you've got one single person that can be tied to both areas of the United States and he's got this weird fetish for strangling you know or at least making videos that strain you know show the strangulation of young women I mean it's it's hard to to let that angle go without some definitive answers I mean I, I lose sleep over it tell us about the moment you decided to go on the offensive well for me it may be different moments for both of us but for me it was after they doxed me in the death fetish community so once my information was out there all of these people knew who I am and how to find me, I decided to fight back. That was it for me. You know, and then I start getting threats that they're going to traffic my children. They're going to burn my house down. It, it got 
to the point where I was either going to have to be really, really afraid, knowing that there wasn't going to be a lot that authorities could do at this point, or I was going to fight back. That made this decision easy for me with the podcast, with the book and everything we've done. And I, I mean, I can't speak for Alicia, but I, I think what's happened to each other, you know, what I've seen them do to her, what that, you know, she's seen them do to me. I mean, that's fueled a fire that I think they're going to wish that never got started. What types of threats have you received? Alicia? Um, oh, there's been so many of them. I feel like a lot of the threats that I receive come through text message, through voicemail, through email. And usually it's some sort of warning, like, you know, you better stop now, you better get out of the community, or you don't want to see what's going to happen to you. Some of them are very sexual about what will be done with my dead body after I'm murdered, um, because I'm going to pay for sticking my nose where it doesn't belong. Neither she or I are weak people by any means in terms of being able to be intimidated easily. And I don't think that they expected that. And when I say they, it's all of the people that are that are harassing us because it's more than one. We want to stand up for the victims. There are, there are so many women that have lost their lives because of the death fetish community. I want to stand up for them too. I mean, their, their life mattered and I want to protect the next girl if at all possible. And I think part of that comes through just educating people to let them know that this stuff is happening. It's dangerous. And here's what you can do about it. Yeah. Tell us what you can do about it. I understand you have a petition. We've started a petition and we're just simply asking for signatures. The easiest way that we can explain it is to say that every signature is just the same as linking arms with us and saying death fetish is not okay. You know, violence against women is not okay. And we want to see teeth in federal obscenity laws. We want people to be held accountable for these things, for what they're saying and doing and depicting in these forums and and outside of them. And so that's the biggest thing. If we could get signatures from all across the United States, that would have a huge impact and it will act as a tool for us as we work with legislators because we we intend to change the laws. And I don't mean this in a self-serving way. We want people to listen to the podcast because it's educational, because we're talking about the realities of people who have lost their lives. And we're talking about producers in different states that I think that people should know about. Is there's one producer that we know was taking pictures of uh, a track team, a girls track team in his area. But he's, he's making death fetish on the side. That should scare the hell out of people, out of parents. Like, what's going on in your own backyard? You, ne- you need to know. Yeah, I think the petition is a great thing that's relatively easy for anybody to do to help support us. I would also just ask that you share our podcast with as many people as you can, share our book with as many people as we can so that people can become aware of this being an issue. It's it's helpful to be able to just spread the awareness and that helps us make connections with the people that can help us. I mean, I think that there was hope in the death fetish community that we would stop, but we can't now. There's just too much that we've uncovered. There's just too much at stake. They're luring young girls into this industry. I want young girls to understand how dangerous that is, you know? You've got this entire death fetish industry that's looked down upon by the mainstream porn industry. Even they know it's dangerous. It's just really important that we get out there and educate and talk about what's happening and let people decide for themselves how they're going to protect themselves and their children, you know, how far they're willing to fight to keep their community safe. Go ahead and plug the 
podcast. We'll obviously put all of the links in the show notes that people can click to, but plug the podcast, plug anywhere that people can go to get more information and to get any updates from you. Well, definitely visit our website at deepdarksecretspodcast.com. You can visit um, the advocacy link on that page and scroll down. We've got lots of great information and links to research. And then we've got the link to the petition there. And we're very active on Instagram and TikTok. We're very active on Facebook. We have a private Facebook group dedicated to the podcast. Do read a copy of the book. There's some great information in that, too. I think you can read it free on Kindle Unlimited right now. Although you should buy it. (laughs) Well, we would. Yeah, we would enjoy that, too. Just we want the information out there, however it gets to people. And if you can, you know, buy it, that would be great for us as well. And you can look up our podcast, which is just, it's called Deep Dark Secrets. And you'll find that really anywhere that you usually get your podcasts. We're on like 15 different carriers. So it should pop up if you search Deep Dark Secrets. You're going to find like a little cartoon image of two girls with a lantern. And that's us. (laughs) 